Welcome to No Way Out, the podcast dedicated to helping individuals and teams across all disciplines improve their capacity for free and independent action. Each week, through thoughtful conversation with leading professionals and academics, hosts Mark McGrath and Brian Pontrevera aim to develop and advance John Boyd's ideas. Join us as we explore the theories and concepts that informed Boyd's UDA sketch, their connections to today's emerging human-centered ideas, and how this knowledge can help us comprehend, shape, and adapt to our unfolding reality. So put your children on vibrate, put your phones to bed, and strap in as you are about to get airborne, and we are about to disrupt your OODA loop. All right. Hey, I want to welcome Alicia Herraro to our uh, podcast today. Uh, she happens to be extremely brilliant in the context of complex adaptive systems, constraints, coherence. And I have no idea where this conversation is going to go today because there's so much we can go into with her background, her experience, her knowledge about the, uh, the world of complexity. However, uh, I will talk about a few things. Maybe we can set a couple of constraints and use things that are somewhat known on this podcast, something like maybe like the Kinevin framework and the OODA loop and kind of anchor from there and really uh, maybe target an audience that is in a social system, in a team or an organization uh, and, and then refer back to the biology and, and, and things like that as we go. But very excited that Alicia is here to uh, have a conversation with us about uh, maybe constraints, maybe coherence, maybe context, a lot of things that are really important today. So welcome, Alicia. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. This is great. Okay. So I have your book here, Context Changes Everything, How Constraints Create Coherence. Uh, one of the things we talk about when we're engaging with organizational leaders is that the system drives behaviors, right? And yes. that doesn't mean a lot to them right away. And I, hopefully you can help us make sense of that when we talk about uh, constraints uh, in, within an organization. So uh, I'd like to hear from you on what where you want to go today with this and uh, kind of maybe talk about uh, constraints a little bit in the context of, of teams and organizations. Well, I think um, what I'd like to start out with is by pointing out that an organization is a coherent dynamic. It is a coherent structure. It is not a bunch of people who happen to be in the same place at the same time. That is an agglomeration, that is a clump of people, that is a mass of people, that might be a collection of people. But when I think of an organization, I think of a dynamic that is organized. That's where the term comes from, organization. Mm -hmm. And that in turn comes from the concept of an organism. So it's more like a living thing than it is like either a machine or a pile of debris, which is mm -hmm. a clump or a mass of things. Why? What makes it hang together as a coherent dynamic? And when I say coherent, I don't mean a block, people acting in sync like a block, like, you know, battalion of soldiers mm -hmm. marching. That's not what I mean. I mean, people who are aligned, who are um, either aiming towards a common purpose 
or their behavior in fact embodies that directionality towards a common purpose, something to that effect. And so the question is, what whence coherence? And that's mm -hmm. what I mean by coherence. Okay. And my answer is that it's it's easier for me to say what it is not. And causes in the sense of pushes and pulls the way science tends to think of as causes is not what makes for coherence. Okay. It is a set of interdependencies among people, among their the way they think, among the way they act, such that the dynamic as a whole that we call the organization can act as a unit, as an integrity. I like the word integrity mm -hmm. to, um, to as a metaphor, not as a metaphor, in fact, I think it's very real, as a about these real things, because when we talk about integrity of a um, piece of ceramic, it means that it, it it holds its integrity. It holds itself together as that unit. And that's what organizations do. And in fact, if I were a leader of an organization, that's certainly what I've, I'd be looking for as the most significant part of my job. To make sure that alignment, that coherent, continues whole and in the purpose of the organization's mission. One of the things that we're seeing in organizations is that many leaders think that um, writing values down on a wall and placing them across the organization, um, that drives, that, that, that is like an, a, constra a constraint for them. Um, just because you write something down doesn't mean that's what's actually driving your organization, right? So, so it's it's not that the um, uh, the artifacts that you put around a room or the emails you push out or things like that. It's it's actually the way you act and the reward systems within your organization and the context. And I'll, I'll throw this out there as context as well. If you have a context where you have a low level of task interdependence and you tell everybody you need to work together as a high performing team, um, you lose there's a gap between what it is you're trying to do and your actual context, right? So this is why I believe this conversation is so important is there's, there's the, the illusion that we try to project as leaders in an organization to say our values that we write on the wall, um, these, you know, my open door policy to come and see me. Uh, and then these, uh, re these, these constraints such as how we reward people in our system. That, um, there's some that drive the behaviors more than others. I just want to get your thoughts on that to see how far I how how far off I am on on this type of thinking. I don't think you're far off at all. I think that we have to distinguish between the interactions that create that coherence and then how that coherence maintains the participants in that coherence aimed in the right direction, keeps them going, keeps them. I, what I want to say is that the organization embodies values. What I mean by that is that the interdependencies that become manifest in behavior, 
are the are the values that that organization possesses, regardless of what anybody writes on the wall. Mm-hmm. And so the values are manifested; they're make they're made visible by those interdependencies. Because one thing I want to make sure I want to say is that an organization is not a thing. It is not a thing like a rock. It's not a thing like a machine. It is a set of interdependencies. It doesn't make it any less real. Mm -hmm. But we tend to think in terms of things. A machine, a car, an atom. We tend to think in terms of things. And when we use nouns like organization, it immediately disposes people to think in terms of things. But it isn't. It's a set of interdependent constraints that become manifest as collective behavior. Okay. And it is those interdependencies that I want to call Oh, I don't know. The constitutive constraints of the organization, it's what constitutes the organization, or it's the governing constraints of an organization that that emerge as a result of certain kinds of interactions among people. Okay. Okay. I always give a stupid example that comes from Jean-Paul Sartre, which goes back, good God, 50 years or more. And he uses an example way back when, and he certainly didn't know about complexity theory. But people standing at a bus stop who've never seen each other before, right? They're just a bunch of people. They're not an organization. They're not, they're not anything. They're just a bunch of people standing together. And all of a sudden, the bus is late, the bus is late, the bus is late, the bus is late. People start looking at each other. Hmm, what's going on? And now, all of a sudden, what you have is an instability. It's a gradient. It's a, it's a disequilibrium, correct? And then people mm-hmm. start asking each other question, questions. Well, is the schedule right? Is this uh, neon sign that says it's supposed to have been here 15 minutes ago? Is that correct? Where are you? Let me check my app and so And all these interactions serve as what I would call enabling constraints. Okay. Because what they do is they take people who were prior to those interactions, they were just independent agents. They were not part of a coherent ensemble. But as a result of these interactions that were constrained by the fact that they're all in the same boat that the bus didn't come, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you get the coalescing of what I would call maybe an action group or a group. It's, it's, the, it's a proto-organization. But I call those inter- constrained interactions enabling constraints. Or put them put it differently, they are affordances. They, they, are, the, they are the kinds of interactions that have the potential to generate a higher level of organization, a group. And it's very curious because I think that often happens 
in a coalescing phase transformation. When you have that, now you've got a group, and it's a group that has certain characteristics. They are willing to act as a collective to go complain to the Department of Motor Vehicle, to the Metro Department. So emergent characteristics um, appear. Here's another point. Once that group proto-organization coalesces, it constrains in a different sense of constraint, not enabling constraint, but as a constitutive governing constraints, the people who are there, meaning what? Once that group, that proto-group has emerged, it's an awful lot harder just to walk away and say, okay, guys, you're on your own. I'm leaving. I'm going to solve my own problem. Becomes a lot harder. That group has governing constraints on the individuals now. These constraints delimit the behavioral possibility space of the people who are suddenly, what's the word we're, we would use? Aligned or entrained or synchronized by that group dynamic or synchronized into that group dynamic. That, to me, is what organizations are. The fact that they happen to register as a corporation in the state of Delaware is irrelevant. Or the fact that the leader puts a sign on the wall is irrelevant. It is right. a certain set of interdependent relationships that make for an organization. And that's where the values are. The values are in the power of that group to make sure that this person doesn't walk away from the group and say, you're on your own, guys. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what cultures are, whether it's, the, whether it's a culture of an ethnicity or the culture of an organization. So you can change all the rules of the game, but that culture is stronger oftentimes than any kind of, you know, ad hoc rules that the CEO does that make sense? It does. There's so many questions here. So as leaders, they should focus on the enabling and governing constraints and not the culture of the... No, what I'm saying is that the culture of the organization is Mm -hmm. the outcome of those enabling constraints because the culture is a higher level phenomenon, right? I am not a culture. I may be synchronized into a culture. I may be entrained into a culture, but I'm not a culture. A culture is a higher level higher level dynamic, like a like an organization is. Correct. Right. So, if I'm a leader, I have to ask myself: All right, what are the enabling constraints that got this organization going as a coherent dynamic? Mm -hmm. And now. What are the governing constraints of that organization such that they are able to regulate and reflect certain values? Are the values that they are reflecting, that, that, that it is reflecting, that the culture is reflecting the values we want? Or has something gone wrong somewhere along the way?
You are listening to No Way Out, sponsored by AGLX. Now, let's get back to building your confidence in complexity. Okay. So it's, it's, it's the leadership actions. It's the actions that are within the organization that determine the culture. Am I right? That enable them. Enable, enable. I don't want to I don't want to suggest that the leader can single-handedly mm-hmm. determine the culture. Because each one of the people entrained into that organization has brought their own history to this system. And one thing that complex dynamical systems are in opposition to Newtonian systems is that complex systems are eminently path dependent. To use a less fancy term, they are historical. So you can't change, you can't by fiat uh, eliminate that history. So that's a very important lesson for a leader because what that says is that that person has to be very careful because they're going to have to live with whatever they are enabling and they are going. I like to use the word cat. I This goes back a long way. I wrote a paper, I mean, decades ago about leadership as cat, cat, catalysis, as a catalyst. And it's interesting because that word ha- is part of the of ordinary language. And we say, oh, so-and-so, oh, that person's really a catalyst for change, right? Mm-hmm. And what is meant by that? What, what that means is that the way they influence an organization is not through old-time, top-down, hierarchical commands. Because I think... Especially nowadays, people understand that complex organizations cannot be changed that way. They're just too complex. And the military learned this before almost anybody else. You know, the reason I've been interested in complexity theory in part is because I live in D.C. And interestingly enough, the Naval Academy had someone as chair of their history department many years ago named Robert Artigiani. Bob Artigiani was chairman of the, of the history department at the Naval Academy for many, many years. He's a good friend. And he invited Ilya Prigogine, who mm-hmm. was the, one of the founders, Nobel Prize winner in chemistry for complex adaptive systems, those named called dissipative structures. And I heard Prigogine speak in the 80s wow. at the Naval Academy. Why? Because the U.S. military understood very, very early on. And there's another book that's fabulous that talks about how even though they might not have used the term, they were really embodying the notion of the distributed control that these complex dynamical systems exhibit. And that's the book by Trent Hone. I don't know if you know the work of Trent Hone. I, I do know Trent, yes. book is called Learning War, and it's fabulous. Yeah. And then he's got the one on Nimitz and so on. But he points out how between the wars, the U.S. Navy realized it had to have a coordination mechanism rather than top-down fiats Mm -hmm. and a coordination 
set of constraints is a set of governing constraints. So that's, so I prefer thinking of leaders in terms of the fact that they provide coordination mechanisms, mechanisms to coordinate or mechanisms to enable uh, catalysts, that sort of thing. It's leadership by catalysis in a sense. Okay, so there's there's more we can unpack here, and I think I want to go back to your point about uh, your Naval Academy connection. Uh, in your book, you talk about Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You look at second law of thermodynamics, entropy. You talk about far from equilibrium. You're talking our language that we talk about here on No Way Out because uh, the reason we have this podcast is John Boyd looked at these uh, disparate ideas from complex adaptive systems thinking, early complex adaptive systems thinking, um, uh, you know, Heisenberg's uncertainty pr- principle. Absolutely. He looked at all these things and that's how we have the OODA loop, which we can really kind of boil down to something really simple-ish. I want to say simple, but it's a evolving, open-ended, far from equilibrium process of self-organization, emergence, and natural selection. That's one way to kind of put a bow on the OODA loop but within that little sentence, there are so many things that you just covered and that we could cover. And I do want to go into, uh, uh, I need your help in understanding a few things because we've had uh, we've had Jim Rudd on the show. We've had uh, Adrian Bijan on the show, uh, which you, you referenced his work in, in your new book. Um, we've had uh, Dave Snowden on the show, which you referenced in your book as well. And we have a lot of mutual connections. What I want to know, and there's there's a lot. We, I want to get into orientation, which is going to connect back to genetics and epigenetics and culture and to previous experience and learned history and all these other things. There's feed forward loops. There's feedback loops we want to dive into. But I want to start with the bigger picture and start with entropy and the second law and persistence. And what does that mean to you when it comes to complex adaptive systems and flow systems? What is it was interesting to me is that when thermodynamics was developed in the 19th century as a theory, right? It classical thermodynamics showed that nature tends towards thermal equilibrium. And the term that's usually used is disorder. It goes from order to disorder. A classical example, as all your viewers, I'm sure, know, is if you show an egg cracking, you never see it going back the other in the other direction from a scrambled eggs to a whole egg. It goes from an organized entity to a disorganized mess on the floor. But then... More or less in that same period, in the mid-19th century, Darwin seemed to show that in the case of biological systems, the opposite was happening. And that was that systems went from very simple, uh, undifferentiated, fertilized eggs to a complex organism, and then a complex ecosystem, and a complex dynamic. So the question was, how do you... How do you explain the complexification of living things without without violating the second law of thermodynamics? I can't remember who it was that said, look, if your theory says the second law is wrong, you better just give it up because that's the one law that's not going to be wrong. And Prigogine gets the Nobel Prize for precisely doing that 
with his theory of dissipative structures. And the standard example of dissipative structures, and by the way, I think the best introduction to this is a little book that I think has just been released. It's very old, called The Self-Organizing Universe by Eric Jansch, uh, the late Eric Jansch, J-A-N-T-S-C-H. Forget about the first chapter. The first chapter is kind of how I found myself at Berkeley. You can skip that okay. one. But the second chapter is a beautiful example of, is a beautiful, clean, simple explanation of complex dynamical systems theory. It's beautiful. Right. And he gives, and everybody, and, and Prigogine gets the Nobel Prize for talking about the so-called Rayleigh-Bernard cells. Um, do you want me to go into those? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. If you take a pan of water and you put it on a, uh, heat it on a source of heat, and you heat it uniformly from below. You know, uh, Bob Artigiani from the Naval Academy, uh, Joe Early from uh, Georgetown University's chemistry department, and I used to do a dog and pony show, traveled all over, mm -hmm. showing this happening. And Joe Early would do it with a Petri dish. You know, it's a pan of water. About, and then he'd pour some chemicals in it, and he'd just let the, the, the heat from the, on an overhead projector, all-time overhead projector, heat from below, and what happens? First thing that happens is a gradient develops, correct? Okay. What's a gradient? A gradient is the appearance of a non-equilibrium conditions, correct? Yes. The, 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 the liquid in that Petri dish is not at thermal equilibrium where you have random molecules of water bumping into each other and staying overall the same way, right? A, if you continue to heat that Petri dish, at a certain temperature threshold, something happens. That is, you start getting these little bubbles right. of liquid. Now, if you don't continue to heat the water, the context, the boundary conditions of that Petri dish, literally the edges of the of the a pan of water or the Petri dish and so on, the conditions surrounding each molecule of water will dampen those little weird little bubbly fluctuations that are strings of molecules interacting with each other. Does this sound familiar with the, it with, it the uh, with the um, bus stop, right? Yeah. It's people yeah. who are first at equilibrium, all of a sudden conditions take them to a disequilibrium condition, you start getting these bubbling uh, going on, but in, back to the Bernard cell, if you continue to heat that pan of liquid at a certain threshold condition, the environment can no, can no longer damp those random perturbations. Mm -hmm. And you get a phase transformation where the system reorganizes into rolling hexagonal cells of fluid mm -hmm. whose direction cannot be predicted. It is the direction of each of those rolling cells, the size, the precise configuration cannot be predicted. But as a whole, a Bernard cell lowers 
local entropy production. So this was a situation that Prigogine deservedly gets the Nobel for showing, look, nobody's saying that overall the second law of thermodynamics is being violated. Overall, that sudden transformation to those rolling hexagonal cells of fluid release a burst of entropy. So overall, the second law of thermodynamics definitely holds. But locally, that newly emergent structure shows locally internal lowered entropy production, which will persist. What do I mean by persistence? That's what you asked. Mm -hmm. It means, just as I said, once that group of people at the bus stop find it hard, once they coalesce as a group, find it hard, each individual finds it hard to leave. Now they're entrained in this dynamic. How do you how do you leave these people in the lurch? That's the social version of it, the human version of it. The water molecule version of it is once each of those water billions of water molecules in each rolling hexagonal uh, Bernard cell is entrained into that larger dynamic, that larger dynamic structure, the dynamic structure as a whole, W-H-O-L-E, constrains the component water molecules. They no longer have the degrees of freedom to do as they please, if you will allow me that anthropomorphism, to do as they please the way they would have before that hexagonal um, Bernard cell structure formed. So it persistence to me means or implies that a an organization and I'm going to use it here too, even though this happens to be a physical organization, it's not a social organization, that an organization has coalesced and has thereby um, restricted the freedom, the degrees of freedom of its components. Therefore, once I am a member of an organization, a social organization, be it a military command unit, be it a uh, corporation, I am not free to behave any way I choose. I there is a as 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 a member of this organization. I am constrained by the values of that organization to which I belong. Meaning what? I am constrained by the interdependent constraint structure that that is that organization. So if I'm that water molecule, you allow me again the the the, the anthropomorphism, I am not free to do as I choose. I have to adhere to the um Emergent characteristics, in the case of human beings, those are values. And obviously, I don't want to say that about Bernard cells, but it is a constraint dynamic that I am now um, constrained to embody because I am part of it now. It it sounds to me like you were just describing the current uh, global condition with the war, the, the, the volatility, the tribalism, everything that's happening on social media. 
Um, even, even I'll give you an example in the military. Uh, I can't do what I want, right? I have to do what I'm constrained or allowed to do, um, within, within the system. I can't speak up and say, I, I don't agree with this. It's because I know if I do, I will lose my job, right? I, it, it's these constraints are happening in organizations too. It's, and then this kind of connects to what we call psychological safety within an organization where you can, uh, bring your full self to work. If, if you're constrained, by the system, you can't act freely, and 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 you know this is this is kind of interesting how how there, there might be a connection between what we learned from the second law uh, when it was applied to uh, Newtonian physics, and we talk about it when applied to complex adaptive systems thinking, which is far from equilibrium. Uh, the idea of flow systems and things like that, and even Collier's work with uh, was a source of energy. Oh, I love that. You mean uh, John, John Collier? Yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah. oh, he's so, he was so wonderful. Um, I want to. Do, I do want to say one thing. Mm-hmm. Complex systems are not monoliths. What I'm, they are not block entities. Mm-hmm. They do not, the individual components of a complex system do not dissolve into the complex system. Okay. Okay. Those water molecules are still H2Os. They're still water molecules. So it's not like, like if I am a member of an organization, I lose my identity and I have to simply parrot. You still have a you still have a boundary, right? It still has a boundary. Right? You still you still have an integrity as an individual. But now you have, in a sense, I, somebody once said to me, think of, think of a painting before you put a frame on it. You know, somehow a frame gives it a property that it wouldn't have had. Or let me give you another example. Maybe, maybe it's better. Um, and I'll use it from, from social systems. A poet who wants to write a sonnet or a haiku, correct, has chosen to do what? To constrain himself or herself to the rules of the sonnet. They've got to be 14 lines long. They've got to rhyme in this or the other. The haiku has to be so many, so on and so forth, correct? Right. So, but in a sense... By doing that, you become a poet. So what I want to say is what I think we have forgotten is that by voluntarily becoming a member of, say, the armed forces or an organization, we have acquired that we acquire other capacities. We acquire the capacity to be a soldier, a we acquire properties we wouldn't have had otherwise. You should get Bob Arduziani on to talk about the difference in the Iliad before and after the war, because his argument is Achilles goes into the Trojan War as a warrior. And what is the character? And, and the old term notion of a warrior was pretty much a freelance operator. Okay. So it takes him that experience before he becomes a soldier. A soldier is a member of a 
of an organized higher level of organization. And in, freelance independent warriors can't get much done. Right, right. In the end analysis. So that just as individual people, if each one of those folks at the bus stop tried to talk the Metro department into being more punctual, they probably wouldn't get very far. But the value of a, uh, a what's the word I'm looking for? A, a An action group, and a person, mm-hmm. you know, um, is that because they are part of the system, there are mechanisms for for maybe modifying the system. Right. Correct? And so I don't want to say I've got to keep my mouth shut. Well, yeah, I mean, there's that's one way to put it. But another way of putting it is I don't want to give up my emergent properties as a citizen, as a... Um, a philosopher, and, and all of these imply that I am a part of a an organization that's that I am part of the history of philosophy. Whether I disagree with a lot of things that they've said in the last few years, nonetheless, I carry that history with me in the same way that those molecules of water in the Bernard cell carry their history with them, and so I can modify the process such that the organization as a whole can evolve. So those are emergent affordances that an individual, be it a person or an individual water molecule, can't do on its own. And I think we forget that. We're We're so interested in emphasizing our individuality that we forget that individual doesn't mean isolated. Individual doesn't mean independent. Even in ethics, most people say a hermit in the middle of nowhere, there are no moral values that apply to that person. I mean, I mean, that's even even the notion of values, of moral values, emerge and make us different from animals in virtue of the fact that we have those uniquely human independent constraints that that make us who we are as human beings uh so and and, and so leaders are in a tricky situation and and members of an organization are in a tricky situation because they're both and neither <laughs> they are both individuals and also members of a whole larger than themselves of a coherent whole larger than themselves which they could they could only be in virtue of those constraints am i making sense no you are so we covered a lot thus far uh i want to try to maybe capture a few things and and move on to a, a few other questions here if I, I think I've heard this in the past, that enabling constraints and um, governing constraints, you can kind of think of them as an endoskeleton and exoskeleton. Is, is that kind of right? Um, you know what? That might work. I prefer always using dynamical ideas rather than static ideas like an 
literally an ex an endoskeleton and an exoskeleton. I'd rather think of the dynamic interactions, for example, that those sensors on those new military exoskeletons afford and enable. See, okay. what is it? It's the information. It's the interdependence among all that information that makes it a an enabling and a governing constraint. It's the information. And the information only appears as a result of those interdependencies, right? I am fascinated, in part because of this startup I'm involved in called Electronica, but I am fascinated by the affordances that the coordination and integration between the drone sensors, mm -hmm. the satellite communications, the fact that the individual soldier on the battlefield in Ukraine has the capacity to interact dynamically with the sensor of the drone, with the actual firing mechanism of the drone, with the information that it sends back to headquarters. Yeah. If that's not the most quintessential example of what the distributive Governing constraints of a complex dynamical systems can't enable. I mean, I don't want to. What enables this whole thing are all those separate, independent, and interdependent phenomena. Mm -hmm. And then, top down, what they are able to accomplish as a result is just mind boggling that. Yeah. Who would have thought we were going to be fighting a drone war? Well, the drone war is leading to attrition warfare, which is going back to second and third generation warfare. So, and we have fourth generation, fifth generation warfare happening. It's it's amazing what's happening at the moment. It, it's it's mind it is mind blowing. Uh, I do want to come back to affordances and your example there. Uh, we talk about we talk about uh, an open system that is uh, has a relationship with a external environment. And that external environment provides affordances. I think that's I'm using that correctly. That allow the um, the open system. In this case, we'll call it the OODA loop or part of the OODA loop to update its orientation, update its its mental model, update its map, or take some type of action uh, on the external environment to to change the external environment. Right. So, is are we using affordances correctly there? Is, is that a great thing? I think so. Yes, I would. I Again, when Gibson wrote about affordances, I don't think he had complex dynamical. I don't know. I don't. I've never read that mm. he knew about uh, complex dynamical systems. It's very tricky. What is an affordance and what is a constitutive governing structure? And the problem is they're the same set of interdependencies. They're just acting as affordances on the way up, if you will, on the way that this thing gets set up. I have a question for you about the OODA loop. Sure. The first the first O is observation. Comes it observe. Correct. Correct. From a philosopher's point of view, it's not that every signal is coming in with equal weight. Mm. Nope. It is you're you're observing relevant information. Yes. Then the question comes from a philosophical point of view: what determines relevance? That's out of the OODA loop. That's prior to the OODA loop. No, this is great. Or, 
prior to the next iteration of the OODA loop. I, I love it. So, so okay. So remember, we're going through iterations of the OODA loop. So orientation. So if you think about it from a neuroscience perspective, the information that comes in is only the information that mismatches or is not aligned to the prediction that that's going out back to the senses. Like your orientation makes prediction and says, I think this is what we're seeing. And it's only looking for the difference of, of you know, the mismatches or surprises coming in from the external environment. So you're, 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 you're spot on. Well, uh, but there's also the top-down part in observation from the more advanced cortic, cortical areas of the neuro the, the brain, yes. which says what you see is what you expected to see. You nailed it. You got it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's not a mismatch. That is, on the contrary, it's a re, it's a reinforcement that can be very dangerous. It is. I, I got hired a number of years ago, and that was thanks to Dave Snowden and, and Ken Evan, to work in Singapore for a week or so with Dave, uh, with the military in Singapore, and it was something about horizon scanning, and that it was a few years after 9-11. The question was, everybody after 9-11 says, it was all there, nobody saw it. Yeah. It's just yeah. that we didn't, so, so how, do you, how do you notice what is not even in your cognitive framework to detect and i think you've put your finger on the answer and that is what we have to teach people is in a sense to in a sense to sense to to, to observe to, to to think about what's wrong with this picture yeah in other words where's where is there something that should match but isn't, or is matching but shouldn't. Because once you've got that, then you've got a very interesting possibility of detecting a truly novel phenomenon. Otherwise, if it's a true black swan, yeah. you wouldn't see it. And that's no. Taleb's point. But 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 the true black swan but, but yet you wonder if, you know, policemen tell people when they, you know, when they're giving workshops in neighborhoods that it might be iffy, mm -hmm. look, if something feels wrong, trust your gut. That interoceptive, yeah. Observation must not just include sensory data that can come in objectively through the five senses right. it has to include something that we that we're not sure we understand and, and, and I, Damasio talks about proprioception you know yep. proprioception in a sense is a sixth sense as to you know where your body is in space correct Yep, proprioception. Yeah, how how I relate to everything. Yes, I'm very yeah. And clearly, um, professional athletes, football players, basketball players, you can see the way they orient their body vis-a-vis -vis mm -hmm. the goal lines or vis-a-vis -vis the end of the court or the field. They yep. know exactly where that goal line is, even though they're not looking at it. There's right. a there's a orientation in space yes now i would want to say that this comes 
as a result of the incredible amount of practice where back to my notion of of being entrained into a into a complex dynamic if you let me rephrase that and say you're entrained into a particular attractor the the notion Mm -hmm. of dynamical attractor and if you think about I don't know if your listeners may be familiar with the Waddington landscapes, those rugged landscapes, epigenetic landscapes. No. Where you are in an attractor will condition, I don't want to go as far as to say determined, but will condition your orientation. Yes. Correct? Absolutely. So the orientation and therefore what you observed they both go together yep and they are eminently context dependent absolutely 1000% <laughs> and people say well how can you explain that you can change what you observe and you can change your context without moving and doing anything i say easy imagine if i'm in on the bottom of the grand canyon and all of a sudden there's an earthquake this is purely hypothetical for a Gedanken experiment, thought experiment. And all of a sudden, the sides of the canyon just collapse and become, um, you know, the, the, the cliffs on the, the side of the canyon collapse. And now I'm at the top of, the, of, of, a, of a mesa, and those cliffs have become uh, canyons below me. Well, boy, my orientation, what I observe, what I can observe, my perception is completely changed and I haven't moved. It's the constraints around me that yes. have all changed. And therefore, my orientation, my observation are completely different than they were before. Uh, wow. So we could dive into so many metaphysical things, including uh, psychedelic assisted therapies. And uh, <laughs> uh, we get into attractor states and, and DMT and compounds and all that with this conversation. We'll, we'll have that conversation. We'll do that later. <laughs> that new stuff, that new, all that new work, yeah. in, in is really that. It's 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 a resetting of the. Instead of modifying and ad, and adapting an existing landscape, what you're doing is literally re, redoing the entire settings and resetting the whole landscape. It's like you're yes. rebooting the system. Yeah. Instead of just modifying the settings. You're rebooting the whole system, and you wonder how much of that is really something that had never occurred to people in the 60s when they were dropping out. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. We're going to dive into uh, more of different modalities and how PTSD and TBI and all that, and and looking at the loop. We'll look at that down the road. We'll come back to that in a few months. But going back to what you pointed out, so going back to the basic understanding of the loop, you have the orientation piece, right? In it, we we have our our culture, uh, cultural heritage, our genetics, which can include epigenetics. We have our previous experience, which is that, that, you know, that learned experience or whatever. You have that new information coming in. So it's that um, interplay between all of those that ter- determine our – wait, I take that back. It's, it's not just – it is the interplay of all those. That new information is the context from the external environment. So it's, the, right. interplay, it's the interplay of all of that that determines how we sense, decide, and act, right? So – and it's not just five senses. And I say this no, when I, right. when I talk about it, because we know, I, I can't, I don't know the exact research, but when you're trading in the market, the number one skill in that profession 
is interoceptive skills. It's not technical skills. It's it's interoceptive. It's how you connect to the universe, right? And within the OODA loop, we can call that uh, finger spritzinger fuel or fingertip feel. It's that feel you get um, that you just sense, right? And you don't know where it's coming from in your body. It's just happening. So you're connected to the external environment somehow. And that's, I think, worth you're exploring. You're embedded. Use, use the word embedded. You're embedded in you're, that context. You're embedded. Okay, okay. We're, we're embedded into this. We're part of this, right? We're part of this. If you If you were just dropped into that location, you wouldn't sense a thing. It's the fact that you're embedded in it that gives you that. And I love when you do that with your hands, because when I used to teach this in class, I, the only way I could do so was by pointing to, you know, you get a feel for the thing. Yeah. Right. But but that's what musicians say that. And in fact, I, I understand that if you really want to mess somebody's tennis game up, all you have to tell them is, Start noticing, start focusing on what it is you're doing with your racket when you swing back and forth. That'll really mess them up. Why? Because you, it, it becomes a muscle memory. And if you want to call that right. interception yeah. or yeah. Pro, it's everything. It's really, it's very interesting. So how do we build that up? And that's, I want to go back to that question is how do you build that, that fingertip feel, that feeling, that embeddedness maybe? And you, you build that up through experience, right? So going back to fighter aviation, the way we would get better with outgoing flying is we would chair fly. We would get in a simulator. We would go through the switches. We would have the communication. We would go through the, the different um, emergencies. We'd have, we'd have these experiences before we go up and experience it, right? And the same thing is true with athletes. And I think uh, there's, a, there's a way of training um, athletes now and, and professionals now. It's, I think it's called the constraint-led approach or constraints-led approach, right? Yeah, you 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 actually create an environment that they're going to experience in a game. And I could see this, I could see this with my kids, right? So when they shoot, just shoot a basketball um kind of nonchalantly and just it, it, that's not the way you're gonna shoot in a game, right? You're not gonna just so you need to practice like you're gonna actually execute. And this is why what when we talk about military execution and military work and things like that, um, the way we phrase it is we spend 99% of our time preparing for that 1%, right? And then, and in business, they spend 1% of the time preparing for the 99%. So what you, what you put in that 1% matters and you you don't have time to do nonsense and pseudoscience. Absolutely. Right. So, but that's what they do is they, they, they hire these consultants that come in here and teach them nonsense and, you know, pseudoscience and they get excited about it and they follow values and they do OKRs and they do all this stuff. But at the end of the day, it really comes back down to what you pointed out earlier. And that is the, um, interdependence, those interactions within the system. And that's where we need to focus our effort. So, so much to unpack here. And the embedding. And I think that's mm -hmm. where, what is your training doing? It is making, it is creating conditions where feedback is obvious, immediate, short-term. You don't, I always, we always used to say when, when people were teaching this stuff about how long must it have taken human beings to realize that it was sex that caused babies? Because there's a nine month gap. The feedback is not very short and it's not very fast. Correct? Yeah. And so yeah. to connect the two must have taken mankind uh, a long time way back when. I, I, I want to pause there because I, I never thought about that. And I think people need to hit pause and go back and listen to that again. That is 
That, that is so true. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it up to my kids tonight when we're up. Uh, so, so the problem no, is that the advantage of feedback and the advantage of simulations mm-hmm. is that by shortening the feedback loop, the possibility of observing the right things, of observing the relevant things, of, 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 of having the correct orientation increases dramatically without having to, you know, do the training with live munitions, you know. Yeah. The, the, so feedback embeds people in the environment in a way that it just doesn't plunk them into the environment. That's why I consider it a constraint. Okay. Um, it's an enabling constraint. Absolutely. Especially feed forward. Because, you know, you do this and it gets it gets reinforced. But mm-hmm. what you don't want is for the problem to spin away out of control, spin out of control, like the positive feedback loops of a microphone, where you end up with right. a horrible yeah. screech. Correct? So the capacity to then test that feedback through another iteration of the process means you are combining feed forward. All right, this is what I did. I'm I'm putting that out into the environment. And now if I feed back into, if I feed that output back into the first step of my next iteration. Yes. Then I can I can see if it worked if it didn't where and and I can try to make sure that it doesn't spin out of control before I even know about it. Okay, let me let me ask you this. This is interesting. A counterfactual as a simulation as a rapid feedback loop that's internal to the system. Is that still a, is that a, is it, is that correct? Can I think like that? Philosophers think of counterfactuals as a big deal because, to the best of our knowledge. Um, the ability to reason about the consequences of what isn't there and or what wouldn't what would have happened if this hadn't happened mm-hmm. is an extremely important I think human capacity. That's what philosophers mean by counterfactuals, right? You're mm-hmm. thinking what would have happened if this hadn't been in place and so it's another form of training because it would suppose you didn't implement that thing that was there and boy we got lucky it happened to be there and look how well the thing worked out well what if it hadn't been there would the consequences have been the same and oftentimes the answer is no and that's because but we don't think about that because we only think of causes as kinetic, as, as you know, mm-hmm. if I fire a gun and the other person dies, that's very clear cause and effect. Or I throw a ball at the window and the window breaks. That's a very clear example of a kinetic cause. And we tend to think of causes only in terms of kinetic causes. But by thinking in terms of what would have happened if it hadn't been there, we are really turning the conversation around so that we're thinking now in terms of constraints. I think. At least I hope that that's... Here's another one for you. A prediction. So we know that the brain predicts, um, you know, the idea is that... uh, the reality we construct is predicted top down inside out. So there's a prediction that's happening about the sensory causes 
Right. So, so is that prediction a constraint? That oh, prediction? absolutely. It's a constraint. Okay. It's exactly as much as a constraint as the um, whole Bernard cell hexagonal rolling cells are a constraint on the on, on the individual mo water molecules. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because that prediction will limit what you see. Yeah, you're right. And yeah, it limits what you see. You don't right. want the word limit. It will put a boundary, at least, yeah. on the possibility space of what you think is feasible. That's you know, a different way of saying the same thing. Yeah, we, we've been looking a lot at the free energy principle, active inference, and of course, uh, Adrian Bijan's work. To, and there's some overlap between all of that Carl Friston's work on, in the free energy principle. Yeah, yeah, he's good. Yeah. He's very yeah. good. Yeah. So that's really helping us understand John Boyd's work a little bit more with the OODA loop. And I think there's, it's one of the reasons why we, we, we think there's a connection between uh, not just warfare, but, uh, uh, you know, conflict competition and then mental health, right? It, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. I think what that also tells you back to my point about complex systems are not block universes. They allow slack. And in this book, I make a big deal about what I call multiple realizability. Sorry about that term. It's what philosophers tend to use. And that is in, in biology, it's called degeneracy. And degeneracy means the same function that one particular protein can carry out may be carried out by different pathways, in different mm -hmm. pathways. So allowing enough slack, yeah. right, to, to accomplish the overall mission of the corporation or the military unit mm -hmm. is not sloppiness. It's not right. loosey-goosiness. It is, it is to set up an, a, a fitness landscape, an adaptive space mm -hmm. that has more likelihood of succeeding given that you are assuming that things might go not go the way you think. Um, early on, I was using a lot the notion of safe fail. Mm -hmm. um, and I got that from Buzz Holling, who was a... Um, very important uh, complex, complex, an ecologist who was very much into complex systems very early on. And he said, you know, he, he associated stability with the idea of fail safe. What do I mean by that? Okay. Stability by definition is the system oscillates very little it's in a boundary it's, it, it's okay. in, a, in a small boundary that's a is stable it, system is, right. correct mm -hmm. and we try to emulate our human organizations to be stable i have a big argument ongoing with a very good economist friend who I keep saying, why do you guys, guys, until the Santa Fe Institute started doing non-equilibrium economics, why do you guys always so enamored of equilibrium economics? Nature does not select for equilibrium, yeah. eh, you yeah. know? Yeah. So Buzz Holling's point was, 
Nature selects for resilience, not for stability. Mm-hmm. And resilience means the capacity, the capacity to modify and evolve despite internal fluctuations and external perturbations, correct? Right. This is like the difference between homeostasis and allostasis, right? Absolutely. And I think if if there's a beauty, I use allostasis for the first time in this book, but Mm -hmm. I do think that the notions of homeostasis and allostasis are beautiful examples of what I call a higher level um, constraint regime. Because uh, homeostasis is not in any one organ. It is not in any one tissue. Correct? It is what? A coordination mechanism that sets the set points, if you will, that establishes the set points of where that system must be in order to be viable under these conditions given that history. So it has to take history into account, and it has to take the current embedding context into account. And it does that constantly. It's fascinating. No, this yeah, is amazing. This is amazing. It's, uh, it's really uh, unbelievable because I, and, and now I am very interested because I've been seeing it more and more popping up. Mm-hmm. The notion mm-hmm. of inflammation hmm. in, in the biological system and you guys can start thinking about what would be the social organization analog to inflammation. Oh, you know, it's something's going wrong. Something's been injured. Something's not working. The, the set point isn't where it's supposed to be. It's, it, and, and we can know that why. Because maybe the, the system's response is too slow, too sluggish. It isn't fit for purpose. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Hmm, there's something wrong. And so... People start running around like chickens with their heads cut off, and maybe that's sort of a human version of inflammation, right? It's just trying to put out local fires, but maybe the problem is more with the homeostatic set point. Hmm. And I know you don't want to get into PTSD, but maybe that's oh, we'll we'll get into. Love to have you back to talk about that down the road. We're gonna we're gonna dive more into that. So the inflammation, uh, I used a. analogy of an aircraft where you have parasitic drag on it, you know, that's normal drag. And then sometimes you get ice on the wings and that's, there's your inflammation right there. Right. So an organization an organization still has things that are like that, or you have parasitic drag in your organization right now. Um, so, so that actually brings me to flow. Space. Um, yeah. Many years ago, and it was a lot of fun because boy, when those F-16s took off, <laughs> It's not my, not my lecture <laughs> with yeah. those afterburners. Absolutely. Um, I, I want to, I, I kind of brought up flow there. You have flow within your book. And I also want to bring up, um, I'm going to get this wrong. You have spatial and temporal constraints. Uh, and I want to start with the the, the time constraints. Uh, the likelihood that of one event that, that happened in the past could influence something in the future. Is that correct? Not only that, it's the fact that the sequence matters. Okay. That the sequence itself serves as a constraint overall. Okay. Um, so it's not that each of these steps matter. It's the sequence in which it happens that matters. Okay. And the reason I'm asking this 
is there's patterns in the universe that people are trying to use to trade in the market and uh, sacred geometry, geometry, things like that. You see these patterns and you can see um, time moves, you know, based on when something was released to today, whatever. I, I'm just curious, is that because we're humans and we're trying to make sense of these patterns or is there actually a pattern? You know, you know, I think that just like Prigogine got the Nobel Prize for talking about dissipative structures. Dissipative structures, as I said, are path dependent. They have a history to it. And Prigogine would always say, and I've never been able to find this written down, but he used to say it in person. I was lucky enough to meet him a couple of times. Um, he'd say, complex systems carry their history on their back. Okay. In other words, they carry their trajectory and and the sequence in which things happened in the past and 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 related to that which is a form of temporal constraint i think is the notion of timing people don't realize that timing i mean people say it but they don't really act on it timing is everything in the following sense and the, the easiest example that i use in the book is Kids learning to swing on a playground swing. Mm-hmm. If you're only focused on the kinetics that cause the swing, then you start kicking harder and harder and harder because you figure the harder I kick, the more. No, it's when you kick that makes all the difference as to whether that swing's going to swing at all. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. And so, so it one has to be careful just because it happened in the past is a better reason for doing something now if you're dealing in a Markovian Newtonian dynamic. But if you're dealing in a complex dynamical system, you've got to be very careful because you don't know where you are in that trajectory. In other words, here's why because complex systems are nonlinear because they can quickly flip to a new phase and, and transform into a new, entirely different landscape. An example that is perfect, I think, to use to explain nonlinearity to people is people go, oh, I took two aspirin, I got a little bit better. Okay, I'm going to do take two more. And I take two more, maybe I get a little bit better. And then maybe they take two more and they got a bit better. Then they take two more and they could end up in the emergency room. Mm-hmm. That there's a point after which the system will not continue in a linear process and might end up being counterproductive. You might get sick as a result of what heretofore were perfectly reasonable constraints that yeah. were getting you somewhere, but not anymore. So okay. I, what do military people say? The problem is we end up fighting the last war. The last war. Yep. Beautiful yep. example of where you've got to be careful. Things in, like they were during the last war. So you go, okay, so what are the new constraints in which I am now embedded that bring their home dynamic that affect that epigenetic, that whole landscape? And therefore, they affect the, the attractor I'm in. They affect the separate tricks, right? The, the hill mm-hmm. that I need to get over in order to get into a better attractor. Uh, how do I get over that? Uh, and so on. And, and again, it becomes a question of 
integrating information from as many disparate sources as you possibly can in order to enable the emergent feature of this new dynamic of this new landscape to appear and make it evident so that you can act on it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I tell you, this has been an amazing conversation. I do have a couple more questions for you if you have time. Uh, you have you talk about flow quite a bit in your book. I mean, you're pulling from, uh, like I said, uh, Bijan's work and, and, and thermodynamics. Um, in your mind, how important is flow when it comes to uh, dynamical systems? I tell me what exactly you mean about flow because I use the word flow, but I don't mean the word flow in the sense of I'm in the flow that everything's going smoothly the way a painter or an artist yeah. or a musician. Yeah. So are you I, using it that I, sense? Uh, you can, but I think you use it more as like energy flows. Like, uh, more, yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think closed systems. Mm-hmm. That do not exchange matter, energy, and information with their environments devolve towards stasis and equilibrium and they die. That is the lesson of the old time thermodynamics. Only conditions that allow for renovation with new energy, with new with new information uh, can become can restructure themselves such that they um, can modify and evolve in that sense I think flow of energy and information are absolutely critical I think you saw that in the former Soviet Union Mm -hmm. right no information, no energy, closed systems devolve towards stasis and equilibrium, and they cannot reconfigure themselves and and survive and evolve and survive. I know we have a lot of problems in America, but one of the maybe I say that as a as an immigrant uh, that immigrants are more optimistic oftentimes than people who were born here. But but I I think America has an incredible capacity to change itself, to modify itself. Mm-hmm. And that can only happen if we allow for free and open exchange of information and energy and and allow the and within constraints of viability, obviously. I mean, mm-hmm. even 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 The founding fathers would not have said that you can shout fire in a crowded theater. That is right. not, that is not. So when I say as a member of a society, you know, I'm saying, look, I don't want to allow people to be able to shout fire in a crowded theater. Mm-hmm. But, but within constraints of literal viability, I think the only way you can expect, I mean, that's the way nature works, correct? If nature doesn't have energy such that it can reconfigure itself, if the pollution is so awful, if the, if the mm-hmm. clean and free energy, to keep going with your notion, the, the words, 
-hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If that's not available, an ecosystem will wither and die. It cannot handle the internal fluctuations and the perturbations. I mean, we do produce entropy. Right. right. We are we are thermodynamic systems. Yeah. But we have to make sure that we we have the wherewithal to create that internal structure, that internal dynamical set of interdependencies that allows us to continue as a species and a society and, and allows us to evolve yeah. and survive. So social media creates algorithms that can potentially funnel information that is um that, that you're biased towards, right? Right. Uh, while preventing information that flows to you that uh, is is surprising to you, right? So you're going to hear things that, and, and this is kind of dangerous. So you, we can start to think about social media platforms as having, uh, what kind of constraints? What, what kind of constraints? Would Very you dangerous. I think what they do sometimes is the fact that they prevent. Mm -hmm. um, and they bias it in a way that is destructive, not constructive. It does not afford the generation of new co of coherent dynamics although that said i must say they focus they certainly encourage an awful lot of dynamics that are noxious to the system and, and i i would say that means mm -hmm. are constraints and we do not quite understand how those works but they sure seem to work very, very quickly yeah. and yeah. very effectively. And when I say effective, I don't mean necessarily beneficially. I mean effect they, right. they 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 are they manage to get people to coalesce around stuff that you think how how does how did that happen? Right. Yeah. It's very scary. Okay. That's very scary. We need to but we need to think in terms of that of how those constraints work. And I don't think anybody sat down to study how that works. Yeah. Uh, and it's fascinating and it's dangerous. We better figure it out quickly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, the, the current events, global current events are, are absolutely mind-blowing. And speaking of current events, I think uh, about the time this podcast comes out, you will be in Washington, D.C. with Dave Snowden, correct? Um, I think so, mid-November sometime. Okay, we'll try to get this out before then. But do you want to give us some background on that and, and potentially how uh, our listeners can reach out to you and some of the work you're doing now that's, uh, that uh, you want to convey to our listeners as well? Thank you. Um, the work I'm doing now is taking a look at um, – I'm doing a little bit of, of trying to figure out exactly where assembly theory is coming from and what it's, what it's mm -hmm. uh, involved in it. And I'm also very interested in – um, certain aspects of the history of philosophy in the 20th century that every single time the history of philosophy had the opportunity to really, you know, bite the bullet on context and see what exactly does context mean for how it affects society, how it affects our thinking, how it frames our cognitive structures and so on. They, they shoved it under the rug and sort of went with, with sort of the standard ontic and epistemic uh, traditional approaches. Uh, and so I'm looking at that. And how can you reach me? I can be reached um, at A Juarero, A-J-U-A-R-R-E-R-O at Vector Analytica. That's V-E-C, T as in Tom, O-R, 
A and as in Nancy, A L Y T I C A dot com, vectoranalytica.com. Perfect. Perfect. All right. And uh, like I said, uh, hopefully I'll see you in a few weeks. I know uh, I'm going to be up in DC for a portion of your events. I can't remember which day I'll be there. Uh, but uh, I want to thank you for your time. And I, I definitely want to have you come back because there's so much more we can go into. Yeah, thank you. I'd uh, love to do a part two. Yeah. It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's it's just a conversation, right? I had no idea we'd go in all these places. And that's what makes this fun is um, we'll find out where it goes, right? Perfect. Perfect. Thank you, right. Brian. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Bye-bye. Thank you. That's all for this episode of No Way Out. We thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the conversation. Make sure you check out the show notes for links to people, ideas, and things discussed in each episode. As always, we want to thank our guests as they are hand-selected to improve your orientation. You can thank our guests by leaving a comment or sharing this episode with a friend. Just a friendly reminder, your competition may be a No Way Out subscriber. Don't let them disrupt your OODA loop. Subscribe today. Thanks again for listening. And we'll catch you in the next episode of No Way Out. What am I getting at? The underlying message is very simple then. There is no way out. Unless we can eliminate the features just cited. Well, problem though, we don't know how to do this. So we have max entropy and max life. Disorder, which is that it's called chaos. Chaos. We want to get a matchup between our actions and our situations, so we do. We have a mismatch, we can't cope, right? If you're in a equilibrium condition, you're dead. In other words, you want to have a wide variety of sources you've got of information to find out those things that hold together and those things don't hold together. The ambiguity helps make adjustments to adapt, to adjust to the world. You can look at things from several points of view. Implicit cross-referencing process of projection, empathy, correlation, and rejection. <laughs>